Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tapir. Gergelecta. Sacula Ijaia. Food. Change. As people who love food, farming, land, fishing, oceans, fresh waters and healthy communities, we believe deeply that a fundamental shift needs to happen in order for all of us to take part equitably of the joy and well-being that healthy communities can bring. Our evolving work for equity is one small part of that process and we are excited to share this path within our organization and externally. This is a statement taken from the Slow Food USA Manifesto for Equity, Inclusion and Justice. Slow Food Youth Network has decided to dedicate a special episode to the concept of social justice within our movement and in the food system, because we believe that this particular historical moment is pivotal for a shift in the definition of human rights and we as a movement want to be part of this change towards a more just and fair food system and world. Today we will have the pleasure of listening to Sarah Jean Whelan from Sfin USA in Vermont and part of the Sfin Global Steering Committee, who interviews Jim Embry, one of the creators of the Slow Food USA Manifesto for Equity, Inclusion and Justice, the EIJ Manifesto. Jim describes the milestones in the history of human rights in the USA, his view on developing a manifesto and how the latest events and the current social debate created a momentum for the manifesto to get a stronger position within Slow Food and beyond. Enjoy the podcast. All right, so um, I am Sarah Jean Whelan. I'm on the steering committee of Sven Global I'm the chair of Slow Food Vermont, and I'm on the leadership board with uh, Sven USA. And I am here today with Jim Embry. Um, he has, amongst many other things, helped to spearhead the construction of Slow Food USA's Equity, Inclusion, and Justice Manifesto. Um, and Jim is gracious enough to devote some of his time to answer some of our questions that Sven USA has developed regarding the um, the manifesto, amongst other things. And um, Jim, I'll let you just talk a little bit about yourself if you'd like to introduce yourself further before we get into some of these questions. All right. Well, well, thank you, Sarah Jean, for this uh, invitation to uh, be a part of this uh, Slow Food Youth Network webinar. Uh, you know, I. Um, a few years ago, I was also a slow food youth, a few years ago. Um, but anyway, um, when I've gone to Terra Madre, uh, such a wonderful experience there in Italy, I have always made it a point to go by the Slow Food Youth Network exhibit area uh, that, that's usually combined with the students from the University of Gastronomic Sciences uh, and it's always a, a, a wonderful, warm, uh, fun place to be at. And uh, of course, in the evening, there's always this incredible dancing and, and, and celebration. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I've, I've also, um, the work that I do now uh, within, say, the slow food movement, 
social justice movement, environmental movement, is due largely in part because as a young person, say at 10 years old, I was brought into the civil rights movement uh, by my mother primarily and have always been involved in intergenerational organizations, uh, movements, and uh, so I recognize that, I recognize the value of this intergenerational dialogue. I recognize the importance of elders like myself finding all kinds of ways to speak with, interact with uh, young people. So I'm uh, just uh, thanking you uh, and thanking the Slow Food Youth Network. I also want to just give a gratitude and a, and a shout out to all the other young folks and not so young folks who will take time to listen in uh, to this webinar. Uh, I want to just say that, you know, uh, the things you hear, if you have questions, if you have comments, uh, if you want more exploration or you want some resources, feel free to Skype me as we are now. Feel free to send me a text, send me an email, or whatever else, okay, that um, I'm here uh, to serve uh, you young folks. And also, uh, I used to have lots of gray matter, okay, up here, and it's getting <laughs> like foss fossilized. So I invite you all to come and pick what's left, okay, up here, and you might find it, it somewhat useful. Oh, wonderful. Well, I'm very excited to start picking through that gray matter. <laughs> So, so let's get started. Um, f first things first, uh, tell us about the history of the manifesto that you have helped to create. Um, what's it all about? What has inspired you to write it? Okay, certainly. Well, of course, I think we all might understand that a manifesto is not a new document for slow food. Uh, back in 1989, when delegates from 15 countries came together in Italy to more officially organize uh, SLOFA International, uh, they wrote and they all adopted and signed the SLOFA Manifesto. And this manifesto laid out kind of the, the rationale for why this thing called slow food was coming into existence. This document laid out uh, the, the elements of inspiration. It laid out the values. Uh, it laid out, if you will, uh, those three principles of, of, uh, of food that is good, clean, and fair were, were, were the principles that embodied that manifesto. Um, so, we saw the writing of the Equity, Inclusion, and Justice Manifesto for Slow Food USA as both a recognition of this historical manifesto as well as a continuation of the responsibility of Slow Food Network members to keep thinking about is there a need now in 2018? Is there a need now in 2020 to write a similar document for our national organizations, for our regional structures, 
are for even our local chapters. And I think it is. So that's kind of the, uh, some of the background to our thinking as we began to um, put forward the idea of a Slow Food USA manifesto. Now, back in January 2017, we, were, we organized what is called the, uh, called the EIJ uh, Working Group. Uh, the Equity, Inclusion, and Justice Working Group, and we organized to support the planning of the resurgence of Slow Food Nations in Denver, Colorado, uh, in July 2017. Uh, and our primary focus was on developing programs, speakers, uh, experiences, uh, resources, that focused around what we call equity, inclusion, and justice. That was our primary responsibility. But after Slow Food Nations, our working group recognized that we didn't want to limit ourselves to only doing programming for Slow Food Nations. That what was needed was, in fact, is for some entity, whether it was our working group or another body to begin to um, uh, work towards including these questions of equity, inclusion, and justice within our entire organization. Uh, so we um, uh, left Slow Food Nations, prepared a document that we then sent to the national office and the board of directors saying, we think we should be charged okay, with coming up with, 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 with some ideas, some initiatives to try to embed uh, you know, uh, EIJ within the total organization. Uh, we also felt in, in our first document that many Slow Food members were kind of like uh, isolating the questions of equity and justice within the principle of FAIR. Okay, and they're saying, hey, we're doing all the work of good, uh, and we're doing all the work of clean, but, you know, uh, that, that, that fair part, that's where we include questions of justice. And we pushed back on that and said, no, <laughs> questions of equity should be in, in every principle. Okay, you can't be good if you're not also equitable. Okay, you can't be clean if not also being inclusive and so forth. So, so what happened uh, from that uh, initial, again, our, our letter, our, our, what we wrote up being sent to the national and to the board, there was, there was, some, there was some resistance and there was lots of silence, okay? Um, and uh, like you, many people, because of that silence and because of that kind of resistance, said, well, hey, you know, maybe I should just pull away from this working group or even pull away from Slow Food as an organization because it's clear from the lack of response, the lack of, you know, uh, of, of, of recommitment, reaffirmation, uh, that maybe this group, this organization is not really committed to these questions of equity, inclusion, and justice. So many of us stayed the course and uh, we, uh, you know, went on to help plan, I guess, if you will, for um, 2018 Slow Food Nations. But we also felt that that lack 
of response was also an inspiration, okay? <laughs> was an inspiration. <laughs> Say, okay, well, if you won't respond, then maybe we will respond by writing this manifesto. Uh, so uh, so it, it, was, it was our recognition that we as a working group had the responsibility to, to keep pushing us along a continuum, us meaning uh, slow food as an organization. So, um, so I was serving at that time along with Charity Kenyon, I was serving as the co-chair of our EIJ working group. And somewhere in, uh, might have been February or so of 2018, as we were in the midst, again, of planning for Slow Food Nations, uh, we thought it would, would be really great if we could get some kind of a document that could be, uh, you know, developed, uh, you know, added to, and then presented at Slow Food Nations. So I was asked as uh, one of the serving co-chairs to uh, take the initial uh, work of drafting what has now become the EIJ, EIJ Manifesto. So then we um, presented at Slow Food Nations, but it was uh, kind of like a, it was kind of, in some way, kind of ragtag. Uh, it was kind of like not uh, presented, say, for example, by the uh, executive director. Uh, it wasn't necessarily printed, uh, presented by the board chair. It was, we had it on paper and we kind of handed it out, uh, but there was no kind of like uh, meeting with news media and with members and chapter leaders where leadership stood there uh, at Slow Food Nations and made this really wonderful pronouncement of what we had. It was kind of rag, in my view, it was kind of ragtag, okay? Uh, but anyway, at least we got it available and, 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 and was ready to be seen by folks. Um, and then uh, we uh, kind of pushed forward that the working group wanted to present the manifesto at Terra Madre in 2018. And we were able to um, get with, um, uh, you know, the, the Terra Madre organizers and get added into the um, programming uh, a workshop uh, about the uh, EIJ manifesto at Terra Madre. And we had a, you know, a, a really, I think, a really fine workshop, uh, good conversation, and so forth. And then we um, uh, took notes of that presentation uh, at Terra Madre and I compiled those notes with some recommendations and again sent those, that document to the uh, Slow Food leadership saying we had a great conversation and here are some of the recommendations uh, from our discussion in Italy about how we move this manifesto forward. And again, we got some silence, okay? <laughs> Which, in my view, silence also might mean resistance. Okay, uh, and we didn't hear much um, about that. And that was uh, the fall and spring 2019. And then we, um, of course, uh, of course, made it available and part of the conversation that's Slow Food Nations 2019. But again, now a few weeks ago, uh, uh, you know, Anna Millet 
on the national office uh, in response to the Black Lives Matter movement and these global protests and demonstrations, felt it would be important to connect the Black Lives Matter movement and Slow Food USA response with the manifesto, okay? And finally, finally, okay, <laughs> after two years, after two years, we had a very determined, a very uh, challenging, and a very embracing statement from the national leadership about the manifesto and how it should be both embraced and implemented by every chapter. So within that letter that went out uh, was this request or this challenge that every local chapter take time, of course, to study the document, to read the document, be inspired by the document, and then to come up with six action steps um, that will be utilized by their local chapter in the implementation of the EIJ manifesto. So that's where it's at now. <laughs> so, 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 so I would say that, again, one of my favorite phrases within Slow Food is that I'm, I love the snail, I love the, the, the uh, symbolism within the labyrinth on the snail. Uh, they're part of all these wonderful creatures. However, as an organization, sometimes we can move too damn slow, okay? So I've been saying that we need to put that snail on a skateboard. <laughs> well, well, so that being said, how, how do you see, how do you see the manifesto being applied to a globalized food system? I mean, you talked a bit about, um, about how you worked um, at Terra Madre trying to inspire others around the world um, through that work. But I mean, even beyond Slow Food, um, do, you, do you have a vision for, for the EIJ manifesto being applied to a, you know, a completely global scale? Well, um, absolutely. I think that the, the EIJ manifesto for Slow Food USA could be somewhat compared to the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. So as we know, um, the entire world have developed protests, demonstrations in support of the USA Black Lives Matter movement. And they've been, you know, drawing pictures and, and, and putting up all kinds of, of, of signs and, 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 and words uh, demanding justice for folks like you know, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and uh, Ahmaud Arbery and many others. Um, but what has also happened is that this global support of the USA Black Lives Matter movement, coupled with the COVID-19 movement, has also inspired people globally to take that lens and say, wow, you know, as we take that lens and do an introspection, then we can see within our own countries that there are similar or even sometimes the same issues of racialized injustice, sexualized injustice, gender uh, uh, inequalities, uh, many different kinds of forms of oppression, uh, whether it's the oppression of like people or whether it's the desecration or the oppression or damage to the other 
natural systems that we humans live within. So, um, so if I could use that kind of you know, comparison or metaphor, then I would say that the EIJ manifesto could also have a similar global impact. It depends upon how much we as Slow Food USA or how much we as Slow Food International value that kind of a statement that we call a manifesto and how much we value what's been developed uh, you know, out of um, the USA. So, so it is my view that slow food leadership, both nationally and internationally, should take this EIJ manifesto and begin to, you know, share it, if you will, promote it, share it, uh, provide it, send it out, and have it accompany other kinds of statements that address the questions of the COVID-19 pandemic, address questions of Black Lives Matter, or address questions of continuing kinds of oppression and inequity and things like that. Um, so it, it, it was my position uh, when we came back from, uh, from Italy, uh, when we presented the Slow Food Manifesto, one recommendation was that every chapter ought to have a manifesto, or every region should have a manifesto, because let's say, for example, I'm in Kentucky, and I'm in the southeast region of the United States, which is that place in our country where Africans were enslaved, okay, for 250 years. It's the place where uh, many Native Americans were uprooted, okay, their lands were taken, confiscated, stolen, and they were driven off their homelands, called the Trail of Tears, and they were shipped, you know, out west. It's also the, the, the region where what we call uh, these uh, historically black colleges and universities are, HBCUs. There's a bunch of them, mostly in the southeast, which means that our manifesto would take in consideration the different historical developments within our region and what's kind of going on there now. So that's, a, that's an idea of how you could develop a manifesto that might have, uh, it might embrace some of the same universal actions coming out of uh, the larger manifesto, but would also, uh, it would also factor in the particular nature of the historical developments of that region, okay, which would be different, say, than from an Oregon or a Washington state region. Okay, it's different, different kind of things uh, and interplay there. So anyway, so, so my point is that we recommended that every state and in fact every region develop uh, a manifesto because we recognize that as we talk about and demand changes, as we demand some radical shifts in policies, some radical shifts in attitudes, we need some kind of a guide, okay, to begin to doing that. We need a guide that's maybe something we can do immediately, but we need also a guide that can take us over the next five years, the next 10 years, the next 20 years. And a manifesto, I think, can be the kind of document that can both provide some actions that can happen immediately, but it can also provide the framework for longer range kind of efforts that we need as well. And I would say that not only the FAO, 
uh, but many other uh, you know, international uh, organizations uh, that deal with food and ag uh, within the USA. Uh, I would recommend that, that we compile a list of, of other you know, similar sister organizations that are working around questions of, of food, food security, food sovereignty, and whatever else. Uh, so in that sense, then the EIJ manifesto becomes a model for the whole world, okay, and also becomes a model for how we tackle these questions of, of being in a globalized food system and the, the elements of, of, of the manifesto, I think, can help us better create, again, good, clean and fair practices, policies within this global food market by what, what's embodied in the uh, manifesto. And part of the manifesto, and this is part of the slow food work, is this uh, tremendous respect, tremendous uh, in, in, uh, inclusive uh, attitude, uh, and, and our efforts to uh, better understand indigenous cultures. Uh, and uh, that's a really important part, I think, of this. Uh, how, do we, how do we create this better relationships uh, in our global uh, food and ag uh, systems uh, where we're not creating so much inequity, we're not going to Brazil and, and, and you know, burning down you know, the, the rainforest for, for them to grow corn, you know, for the USA market and things like that. So um, I think it has a tr tremendous potentiality of being an important document, not by itself, but in the idea that we need to have clear statements on what we stand for, we need to have some action steps that guide us over a long period of time, and we've got to have a vision for, we talk about, you know, a, a, a society or, 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 or a time where we have this good, clean, and fair, well, what does that look like? What's the vision that we are aspiring to? should all be a part of this manifesto. Right. Thanks. Um, and, and so now I, I want to talk a bit um, about your, like both your social activism and then as well as, um, as some examples you've seen of movements that have resulted in intangible change versus, versus some movements that have fizzled out. And and to build on that, how how can we keep this momentum that we have both in the U.S. and globally um, around this movement for racial justice that we've been demanding? Um, I, I I'd like to hear your perspective on how how to keep this momentum and not and not let it fizzle out. As a species, we have been for a hundred thousand years trying to figure out what it means to be human. Okay. That's been our quest. We think we have evolved completely, but we haven't. Okay? We think we're even civilized, but in my view, we're not. Okay? Because if we were civilized as a species, then we would not desecrate, pollute, add toxins to the air the water, the land, that's essential for our life. If we were civilized as a species, especially the men, then we would not do any harm, we wouldn't do any oppression, any desecration of women, because every human being 
came through a woman. Uh, but y'all check out, make sure. Pretty sure that's accurate. <laughs> Pretty sure that's right. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, okay, well, thank you for, for reaffirming. We, but we all have come through a woman. Wow. I mean, how sacred can you get as a relationship? Okay. Within the word woman, we have both woman and man. But within man, you don't have both genders. Within female, you've got female. Anyway, I want, that's another whole webinar, okay? But, but, but my point is, I'm saying that I recognize that as a species, we're still evolving, still asking the question of what it means to be human. And right now, at this juncture, because of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and because of the police violence pandemic, the racialized violence pandemic, the, the sexualized uh, violence pandemic. Now we're asking globally uh, these questions almost in unison, okay? Uh, so it's a very unique point, I think, in human history. Very unique point. Uh, but we can't forget that we've been on this long journey and that different social movements that have, that they're episodic. Sometimes you're on a crest, you're on a hill, there's a leap in development, uh, then you go down into a valley, then the movements you know, develop and they grow and you go back again uh, up on the hill. Well, in some ways, that's the same thing that the folks who were enslaved in our country. When, when, when Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, they said, wow, like, I can see the promised land of freedom, okay? I can see it, I can see the promised land of freedom. When, when women, you know, women in our country, uh, uh, it's called the Women's Suffrage Movement, began in the 1840s, and Sarah Jean, you probably weren't around back then. <laughs> A little before my time. But you know, they spent 70 years Okay, demanding, protesting, some being locked up, okay, some being jailed, some going on hung hunger strikes. And of course, the women's suffrage movement in some ways uh, was somewhat conjoined with the abolitionist movement of the 1840s. Some of the same women who were, who, who were demanding and campaigning for women's rights we're also campaigning for the rights of all people and people who were enslaved. But it took 70 years. So, so I'm just trying to lay out a, a kind of, a, a, of an understanding that sometimes we, as we're young and whatever, we, we kind of think that what's going on now hasn't been going on in and centuries before. And we've got to, in my view, we've got to keep in mind uh, we have to study world movements, okay? We've got to study human development so as to recognize that the idea of things fizzling out, okay? Uh, uh, things not producing tangible results has been a common thread within human history. Uh, you know, I'm sure that the women who began uh, in the 1840s uh, marching on uh, Washington, D.C., writing articles, thought, well, I know these white guys, you know, uh, 
up in Washington, D.C., who are hitting up the government, you know, who are, who are the president, Supreme Court people, once they hear our outcry, surely they will say, surely they will say <laughs> that, yes, you women ought to have full citizenship, okay? I mean, how simple is that? But they didn't. So uh, I just want to kind of point that out, that, that um, various movements, and I've been involved in all of them since 1960. I've been involved in the LGBTQ movement, uh, the disability movement, anti-nuclear movement, uh, anti-war movement, uh, labor movement, and so forth. And that these movements have all achieved certain successes. And they also experience different elements of, like, say, fizzling out are, are, are not able to get the demand that they were asking for. Uh, but that's okay. That's okay, because as we understand human history, as we understand our own U.S. history, then we recognize that's the nature of social movements. The movement to abolish slavery was 250 years, okay, and its development. So, um, but... Uh, the things that we can do, however, to kind of um, keep movements alive is, in my view, we need to recognize that there are social movements and then there are social protests. There are social demonstrations. They're not always the same. A movement is more of a, of, of, of a larger body of people based around whether it's a singular concern or, or multi-layered concerns who's able not only to plan and execute different public protests, but they also do the hard work of what goes on between the protests, okay? There's always education. There's always different kinds of training. There's always um, elements of integrating intergenerational uh, dialogues and so forth. During the Civil Rights Movement, see, part of the danger uh, of some of the television shows and some of the uh, things, the movies about civil rights movement is that what we, what we have learned to think of is that the movement was about these big protests, okay? The big march in Washington, 63, the march on Selma, <clears throat> and things like that. But I can tell you that in between those demonstrations, we had meetings every week, okay? <laughs> we had meetings every week in between the big marches. Uh, I was involved in the 60s in what was called the, the Freedom School Movement. Uh, folks recognized that we needed to have schools, especially for young people, that would provide education about the history of the United States, the history of, of, of enslavement, the history of racial prejudice, um, uh, uh, training on, on how to go in and organize your community, how to go in and design a, a march, okay, or a protest, and then how do you come out of that with more people than you went into. Uh, so I go to, I've been to a lot of marches in the last bunch of years, and by and large, when you leave there, you're not given any kind of a paper that says, oh, well, here's the next meeting. Okay, well, here's the next webinar, okay? Or, 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 or here is the committees that we formed around different topical issues, and we want everybody to sign up for a committee so we know who you are. There has been no attempt I've seen for folks take a piece of paper, and get people's uh, info about how to contact them. Get an email, get a phone number, or whatever. Okay, because we tend to think 
that we can that we can create this movement on Facebook or create a movement on Instagram. And those are all great platforms, okay? Those are all great platforms. But they do not create the kinds of connections with people. They don't provide the kind of educational opportunities uh, that we need to be grounded in some common sense of history and a common sense of vision of where we're going. So a movement provides things like that. It provides at least three things. It provides... Um, initiatives, it provides the, the, the opportunities to resist and demonstrate, resist the onslaught. It does that. Thirdly, a movement also has to create alternatives, okay? Uh, even though we have this kind of condition, what can we create as alternatives to what's going on now? The movement also has to create vision. So it has at least those three elements, providing uh, spaces for resistance, demonstration, protest, things like that. Uh, secondly, it, it must also provide uh, the opportunities to engage in alternative structures, alternative ways of doing things, okay? And also creating vision. Uh, and, and when you begin to commit to doing things like that, then your movement won't fizzle out. Your movement will have sustainability. A movement should also say, okay, we're gonna meet downtown, we're gonna have a march, and then from seven to eight, we're going to divide up into four groups and we're going to go into our communities. You go to the east, you go to the west, you go to the south, and you go to the north, and you go door to door. And you talk to people, and you meet people, and you get to know people, and you share your frustration, you share your vision, you share uh, how we should be moving forward as a community but you're trying to organize the community, okay? To where you have more people who are part of the movement. So I think that, that, that some of the tactics that we've been using for the last 10 or 15 years are tactics, are tactics that if you wanna ensure that you fizzle out, well, if you, if you, if you do only those things, you're gonna fizzle out, okay? Uh, but we have to, um, again, I think we have to, uh, uh, create a whole educational uh, apparatus, okay, where but the younger folks, okay, so we have people coming out to the march, and I've seen kids out you know, who are four and five and eight and nine and, and young teens. Well, they need to be watching or reading some things to help them understand that you as a young person and this movement, you aren't the only person who've been, who's been involved in social movements. And show them the kids who, who, helped, uh, who helped create change in Montgomery, the Montgomery bus boycott, okay? Show them things like that uh, and, and provide that kind of uh, educational apparatus. So during the, um, the freedom schools in the South, folks did things like that. They provided an educational experience uh, for people of all ages to be better grounded in why is there the movement going on now? What does it mean? What's the history of our country, and where are we going? And so, and tell me, in your words, um, how does food fit into this conversation? How, why do you see food as political? Well, you know, I'm an old leftist uh, and, and a believer that the, that, the, that the current system that guides us in the world, uh, that we tend to call capitalism or imperialism or... or, or based upon profit and exploitation has out, 
served its time. Okay, it's, it's now it's archaic, and and the, the the pandemic that we're experiencing with COVID and this uh, uh, globalized uh, movement around uh, Black Lives Matter and the idea of this all kinds of forms of oppression has been generated by a capitalistic economic system and a capitalist cultural system, okay? Uh, and it's outlived its time. And, and we should be thinking about how do we radically shift, okay, uh, a, a, a system of economics, of politics, of culture, of education to one that, that, that emphasizes that on earth all the lives of all the people, all of these lives matter. And, and we need to move from um, a focus on individual rights to individual and collective responsibility. So, so, so anyway, as, as an old leftist, one of our phrases years ago that we used to repeat is that everything is political. The songs you sing in your faith organization are political. How you frame a college curriculum is political. How you name a building on a campus for some, you know, we tend to name buildings after some individual who gave lots of, lots of money to help build the building or help money for the school, okay? So the point is that everything is political. Within our, within our country, food is political because the government at the federal, state, and local levels all pass laws, they pass policies, they make court decisions that impact every aspect of the food and ag system. But most of their decisions that they have made over the last 300 years has been largely guided by how can we pass laws, how can we pass the farm bill, how can we pass these policies that first of all benefits the large corporations? How can they be insured of making maximum profit? Even when the profit is at the expense of the health of people, at the health of the environment, and really at the expense of the economy. So food is political because in our country's founding, we were founded based upon Europeans coming over and wanting, needing land to grow food products, okay? To grow something for the market. That was the first foundational principle of the country. The second was, well, we want to grow this food. This land, they were saying, was all empty, other than those few million people that we'll get rid, we're going to get rid of them. But anyway, they said, well, we've got, we got to have labor to work the farms, to work the plantations, and wouldn't it be great if we had free labor? Okay? So within that context then, the country's founding was based upon food and agriculture, and there were some political decisions made for a while in England by the king and, and other people uh, who settled in the Americas. Then later on, decisions were made at the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court. Uh, decisions were made within the Constitution. Decisions were made 
by our Congress um, that the create this system we have now of such inequality within the food system. We make choices every day uh, about what foods to buy, where to buy it at, clothing to buy, you know, uh, where to hook up, uh, where to, social media to, to get involved in. All those decisions are political. When we go to a grocery store and, 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 and we buy a, a pound of coffee or we buy a, a, a chocolate bar and that coffee is being grown in another country where the people there are using all of their land to grow coffee, but they're not growing food for themselves and they're having to import food from other countries because the land is being reserved for our products, then purchasing that coffee or that chocolate bar is a political statement. It's a political act. Right. And so let's talk a little bit then about, about food sovereignty and how this, that fits into the, this piece of the puzzle. And, and do you think our work, both as individuals and as a movement within Slow Food um, or SVIN, that, that our work is more effective through through these local gla- grassroots movements, or, or should we doing more work um, through policy, whether that be advocacy and lobbying? Just, just talk to me a bit about your perspective on this. Okay, okay. Well, as a movement, we should be doing at least three things. We should be resisting, protesting, demonstrating, trying to hold ground from the onslaught. Secondly, creating alternatives. And Slow Food uh, came about I guess in the uh, 80s in Italy, was an alternative, okay? Uh, slow Food Youth Network represents within the Slow Food Network an alternative that provides young people uh, you know, a greater voice, greater input, uh, opportunities to, to collectively you know, think and act. So, and thirdly, we have to create vision. So what that means is, that this is what it means, Sarah Jean, is that, that we must always be thinking about all those three levels, okay, simultaneously. So, so I'm trying to, to say that as a, as, as a background around then food sovereignty, and then uh, how do we begin to, you know, do we address it? Is it addressed better locally? Is it better addressed nationally? Internationally? Well, we need action on all levels. We can work locally to both educate about food sovereignty but also make sure that we're supporting by our decisions uh, how people choose to develop uh, and strengthen their food sovereignty uh, you know, ways around the world. So <clears throat> I just think that, that within Slow Food, we need to do a lot more education. You know, we ought to have a whole page or a bunch of pages about food sovereignty uh, and, 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 and we're doing some, some, some good works in a, in a variety of countries uh, to both support um, people's right to the land, people's right to their language, people's right to their cultural ways, and people's right to their food and agricultural ways. And we're doing some really good work, in my view, along those lines. I think that food sovereignty and our work within it can open up the doors to, uh, to actually beginning to uh, take action steps around the EIJ manifesto. And 
before we wrap up, I'd, I'd love to just hear any words of advice you might have for young people listening who might feel discouraged by, um, by this paradigm that sort of exists within the slow food network and how it's portrayed typically as just, uh, you know, a club for white and affluent foodies. <laughs> Um, how do we shift this paradigm and make the network truly accessible and representative yeah. of all races and cultures? Great question. So this, this, this question of, um, you know, of, of how do we you know, move our organization from one that has been talked about, has been portrayed, and we have manifested as well uh, as being a network of white and affluent foodies, you know, and how do we move beyond that? Well, I think that we need to, first of all, kind of understand the history of Slow Food USA, okay, in the context of the, the global slow food movement and Terra Madre, and how, you know, how we kind of came into that network. So, in the USA, you know, we came into the network of many people who were already involved in the foodie movement and many people had been involved in that with, and, and didn't have what you might call a social justice lens. They were not involved with people of color. They didn't show much concern for the migrant workers uh, you know, who had been campaigning for, you know, higher wages and safer working conditions and, and things like that. Um, and so by and large, uh, it was those individuals who came into leadership of Slow Food USA. You know, you know, they were the ones who formed the chapters. They were the ones who, who, who became the leadership as governors and as board members. And that's kind of what happened, not everywhere, uh, but it happened, it happened in Kentucky. Okay, I can tell you that. Uh, and for what I'm hearing, it also happened in many other cities. So what happens, if, you're, if you are allowed to exist in that kind of environment, if you are allowed as a chapter leader, as chapter members, as uh, uh, board members to do slow food work, but only include a small part of your community, if you're able to do, do the work and you're satisfied with it just being all white people and all people who are middle class, if you're allowed to do that, then you keep doing it. So here's some ideas, I think, for young people. As you understand the history, then as young folks, you say, well, okay, you know, we want to act differently and we want to push this snail forward. We, we, we want to follow Jim Embry's advice to get that snail on a skateboard, okay, and push it along. So, I think what you all can do, as you already are doing, is be fully integrated with the Slow Food Network globally, okay? Uh, be in conversation, be in connection, uh, you know, be a part of different global campaigns, form these connections with other young people, and even not so young people in our, in, in our global network. I think also what's important is that, you know, on your, um, if you're on college campuses, 
is to, um, within your slow food work on campuses, make sure that you're reaching out to the very diverse people who are on your campus, the students, the faculty, the staff, you know, have uh, events or have sessions where you're reaching out and you're inviting uh, this wonderful diversity around your campus. But then also, even while you're a student, make sure you've got one leg on the campus and one leg in the community. That you're doing all kinds of things to invite and connect up with uh, the larger community uh, around you. Um, so in, in that way, I'm saying as a young person, and, and you know, uh, Sarah Jean, I went to New York City in 1968. I'm an old country boy right from Kentucky. Uh, uh, with mud in my toes, you know, and corn cob pipe and bib overhauls. Not quite all that, but anyway, I went to New York City, went to New York City in 68, and I got on the subway, and I didn't hear English being spoken. I said, wow, where am I? You know, wow. Uh, and then I went around New York, uh, and in some ways, it just blew my head up because of the tremendous ethnic diversity in New York City. And I just loved it. I just loved it. And I especially loved all the foodstuffs I had never tried before. Okay, again, being from Kentucky, we had a certain limited lens about food. But in New York, I got this much wider lens about people and foodstuffs and music. So I fell in love with the world in New York. So I would say for young people, if you haven't already, okay, fall in love with the world, okay? And once you fall in love with the world and all of its people, and I'm saying people meaning, again, human people, plant people, animal people, air people, water people, rock people, uh, and those are sentiments that you find within indigenous culture. You know, they say that all of these earthlings all these earth things, we're all family. We're all interconnected. These rocks become us. These rocks become the, the embodiment of iron in our hemoglobin molecule. These minerals and stones become the elements of our bone and so forth. They're all family. But anyway, another, web, another webinar there. So I'm saying fall in love with the world. And when you do that, then you will intentionally find all kinds of ways and creative ways to relate to, connect to, um, uh, organize with uh, all kinds of people. So as young leaders, uh, I think it's important that you also challenge uh, us as elders. So I think that, 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 that there are roles that young people can play We've been an organization that has, rightfully so, been seen as this affluent, white, you know, high-priced dinner organization. But we recognize that we don't want to keep being that way, that we commit to being something different. We commit to moving in some different directions that are much more inclusive, uh, much more equitable. Uh, so we need to be just straightforward and honest about things like that. So I think that, 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 that you as young people can help elders accountable for being honest and transparent. And I haven't seen that 
the way I would like to see it. Just being honest and transparent. So those are, are I think, just a, a few things, but um, just, you know, fall in love with the world. So that's why I tell young people, you know, yeah, you know, don't, don't be too discouraged, don't be too frustrated, you know, don't lose hope. Because, again, this has been a long evolution as a species. And we got a long way to go, okay? We are still evolving. And you get to play in this time right now, you know, a, a, a creative, a meaningful, um, an exciting role. Uh, you know, it's like, like there's, there's, there's no better time okay, <laughs> to be a young person <laughs> than now. Couldn't agree more. Jim, thank you so, so much for your time. Um, You're a true inspiration, not only for myself, but for people around the world. Um, And it's been a complete honor and pleasure talking to you today. Oh, likewise, dear. Thank you for reaching out. See you all. Bye. If you like this podcast, remember to share it with your friends and to subscribe to our channel. You can also support these and other projects of the Slow Food Youth Network by donating on our Patreon page. See you in the next episode.